Hello there, everyone. This is Nurse Mo, and welcome back to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. This is episode 102, and today we're going to talk about how you can deal with difficult patients and difficult families, because yes, they do exist. Before we get into that, though, I want to give a quick shout out to Alwyn, who had this to say about the nursing student planners, which are now available for the July 20. 20 to June 2021 academic year. Alwyn says, just ordered my second planner from Nurse Mo. Looking forward to another organized year. This planner is really the best for nursing students. So motivating to be able to check those little to-do lists. Love it. Alwyn, I absolutely love that you love it and that it is helping you be organized and stay on top of things in nursing school. So if you guys out there are interested in getting the same planner that Alwyn is talking about, it is available in my Etsy shop at etsy.com slash shop slash straight A nursing. And I will also put a link to it in the show notes. Okay, so today you guys, we're going to be talking about a topic that as a nursing student or brand new nurse, you might not realize you need some guidance on this area until you come across a difficult patient or difficult family member. And I promise you it will happen. It will happen a lot. And there's a lot of reasons why it happens. The main reason why it happens is that these people are just under an incredible amount of stress. And unfortunately, sometimes their behavior um, exerts their stress back on you as the primary care provider. So having strategies, having uh, an attitude to handle it with grace and professionalism is really important so that you um, continue to provide excellent care and don't get burned out dealing with all these different kinds of people that you're going to be dealing with. The other day I was sitting in on a class. As many of you know, I'm finishing up my master's in nursing education. And so I was sitting in on a class to observe how the instructors were utilizing distance education and still conducting an awesome, very interactive class with their students. And that involved showing a video scenario of a medication error. And I have to say it was one of the best, most well done uh, scenario videos I've ever seen. And one of the things that was so realistic about this video, about this scenario, was how rude the patient was being to the nurse. And a lot of the students were really taken aback by it. And I said, honestly, you guys, that's the most realistic video I've ever seen trying to depict what what it's like for a nurse in this environment. Not all patients are like that, but a lot of times they are. I mean, enough that it can really start to wear you down after a while. So I just wanted them to know that that was super realistic. The medication error that happened was also very realistic, happens, unfortunately, um, it's not uncommon. And um, it was just interesting to see them make that connection that, oh, wow, not all my patients are going to be so thankful and happy to see me. So let's talk about the different types of difficult patients and families and some ways that you can approach them so that you remain professional, you remain gracious, but you also remain um, not a doormat. Okay, you definitely don't want to be a doormat 
at all. Okay. So in general, I would say that being a nurse, especially in the like um, ER or high acuity areas is going to test, well, you know what, I would say every area, to be honest, it's going to test every single one of your people skills. Um, You're dealing with people. And again, it's they're under immense stress. It's usually the very worst day of their lives in a lot of cases, or at the very least a situation that they don't want to be in. Um, You know, for us, for nurses, for nursing students dealing with illness, dealing with life-death situations is commonplace. It's part of our job. I'm not saying that it becomes um, less horrifying or less tragic. It's just that we get used to seeing it and we might forget how different it is from the other perspective. You know, for our patients, for our families, they're most likely dealing with something that they've never experienced before, never dreamed they would experience. And again, they're under an intense amount of emotional stress. If the patient is the one, you know, they're under an incredible amount of physical stress as well. So I want you to keep that in mind as you approach these difficult situations and hopefully have more compassion and less frustration. Okay, so here is a quick, we'll just run through a quick little sample of the most common types of difficult patients and families. Of course, every situation is unique and there's going to be people out there that you encounter that fall well outside these um kind of scenarios that I paint. But here's the most common things that I've seen since I've been a nurse for about the past nine, 10 years or so. Okay, so one of the most common you will come across is the manipulative patient. Um, This is definitely one of the most common types of difficult patients that you will encounter. They will do things like pit nurses against one another. They will lie. They will do whatever they can to get their way. So you might hear a nurse or a patient say something like, oh, that nurse yesterday, just awful. Oh my God, I'm so glad I have you today instead. Well, guess what? They're not glad they have you because you're amazing. They're glad they have you because they think they can manipulate you. The other nurse the day before probably didn't buy into their manipulative behavior. And now they want to try to make it seem like you're a better nurse because you're pleasing them and you're giving them what they want. So they're going to say the same thing about you. When they get their next nurse on the next shift or the next day, of course, unless you give in to their every manipulative demand, um, then they love you. But if they're being manipulative and asking for things that aren't appropriate or whatever, and you're standing your ground, they're going to not like you and they're going to complain about you as well. So um By telling you that they're so happy that you're their nurse and that other nurse was so terrible, they're trying to get you on their side, basically, and get you to feel kind of indebted to them or grateful to them and do nice things for them, Um, you know, like bringing them ice chips when they're NPO, you know, strictly NPO 
patients. It's hard. Um, and they will manipulate the heck out of you to try to get ice chips. And it seems like such a silly thing, ice chips. But when you're NPO, ice chips are heavenly. Um, or maybe they want extra pain medication when they don't really need it. And that's another really common um, manipulative behavior that patients will exhibit when they want lots of pain medication, lots of uh, benzodiazepines, things like that, things that are drugs that could be easily abused. So um, there was a patient um, that I took care of a long time ago who was on a strict fluid restriction. So again, these patients, unless they're used to it, like sometimes your chronic kidney failure patient who has to go to dialysis or whatever, and they're kind of on a fluid restriction, or your patient with severe CHF, they're on a fluid restriction, and they've been managing it for a while. They're kind of used to it. But especially for the newly restricted patient, oh my gosh, if they only drank two glasses of water before, now that it's restricted, they're going to be obsessing about it and trying to manipulate in a lot of cases to get more fluids. So like the, you know, this one particular patient would get his, um, drink all of his water allowance all at once, despite, uh, being told that he should space it out over the day. Um, I don't think I took him all 1200 mils at once. I think he was getting fluid in from the outside, like having a family member bring, um, whatever, a big, thing of tea or something. I don't remember what it was. But when I have a patient, just a little side note, on a fluid restriction like that, I discuss with them ahead of time, like a schedule for, okay, we're going to do a cup of water with breakfast. We'll do one in between breakfast and lunch. We'll do another one with lunch. We'll do one in between, you know, so that we kind of spread it out over the day and we have an agreed upon regimen. I would never take them their whole 1200 mils at once and say, my, uh, you know, police yourself on this because they're going to have a really hard time doing that unless they're used to it. But anyway, that's beside the point. This patient would drink all of his fluid allowance all at once and then ask absolutely anyone who came into the room to get him some water. And his hope was that the person in the room, whether it was the uh, one of the techs or the lab technician or one of the doctors or social work or whoever, his hope was that they wouldn't know he was on fluid restriction and would bring him some, some water. So if the nurse, me, had not communicated his fluid restriction to the rest of the staff and put a little note um, on the door, then he could have easily talked someone into bringing him more fluids than he was allowed to actually have. And then when he realized we were all onto him, he started getting up to the sink, uh, somehow not getting disconnected from the monitors. He was, you know, pretty adept at getting out of bed, getting up to the sink, and drinking water straight from the sink. So finally, we had to call maintenance and have them come turn off the sink in his room. I mean, it got to that point. So that was a very manipulative patient that was constantly trying to get something that he wasn't allowed to have. And he knew he wasn't allowed to have it. He was absolutely fine, like lying to people, be like, I'm not on fluid restriction. What are you talking about? I'm just really thirsty. Okay, so um, when you have manipulative patients, the key to dealing with their behavior is, first of all, you need to recognize it before you actually get manipulated. It's a lot harder 
to give in to the manipulative behavior and then later on say, oh man, they really played me and then go set boundaries. So let's say you're in the room and you're talking with your patient and you know they just got their pain medicine uh, you know, two hours ago and it's every four hours and they are saying they want more pain medicine, but you know, maybe, maybe they're telling you they're in extreme excruciating 10 out of 10 pain, but they are laughing it up and talking and and moving around in bed just fine, no grimace, no change in vital signs. I mean, we could go on a whole thing about pain assessment and true pain assessment versus just taking the patient's numerical value. It's a whole complicated topic, but let's just say you've got a patient who's saying they have 10 out of 10 pain, but they're clearly not acting like they have 10 out of 10 pain. And I know in nursing school that if you're still taught the way I was, that whatever the patient says it is, that's what it is. Well, that's the joint commission. And that's the joint commission saying that pain is the fifth vital sign. And interestingly, I'm going off on a little bit of a tangent here. But interestingly, I was doing my research for my graduate, like my big project for graduate school. And I came across a study that said, since the joint commission elevated pain to the fifth vital sign, um, at least one study has shown a doubling in opioid induced respiratory depression fatal events in the inpatient setting. So I'm not saying don't treat patients' pain. Of course, you're going to treat patients' pain. But we have to be you know, prudent with that and not give them so much pain medication that they stop breathing. So let's say, let's say you gave your patient her 0.5 of Dilaudid, okay, two hours ago. And when you gave her the 0.5 of Dilaudid, she became so, um, her respiration slowed down so much that you had to repeatedly stimulate her to get her to wake up and breathe. Okay, so a patient like this, you're not going to give 0.5 of Dilaudid to again, um, especially not early. And so let's say now it's been two hours, she's woken up from her Dilaudid nap, she didn't die because you were there and you were keeping her awake and stimulating her and you put oxygen on her and all of this. And now she's saying that she's in 10 out of 10 pain. And because she knows by telling you I have 10 out of 10 pain, she's going to get the 0.5 of Dilaudid and not the 0.25 of Dilaudid that she might get if she says her pain is only a 6. Okay, so she tells you she has 10 out of 10 pain, but she doesn't exhibit any signs of someone in pain. And you tell her, last time I gave you 0.5 of Dilaudid, you stopped breathing. I'm not going to give you 0.5 of Dilaudid. I'm going to give you um, an appropriate dose. Or we're going to hold off on the doses until I'm sure that you're breathing okay, because every time you fall asleep, you stop breathing. This patient is, uh, you know, very likely going to engage in manipulative behavior to try to get you to bring her pain medication when she doesn't a need it or when it's not safe for her. So if you notice this kind of manipulative behavior beginning to happen, or they do that thing, like I said, where they're like, oh, I'm so glad it's you today. That other nurse was just so awful. And you know that other nurse and you know that other nurse is not awful. Then you can kind of clue yourself in that, all right, What's it going to be? Are you going to, you know, you're going to be trying to manipulate me? So setting very clear boundaries from the outset and very clear expectations is absolutely key. So um, 
going over the pain management plan with the patient at the beginning of this shift. Very important. If they're one of those people that's, you know, trying to elicit more pain medication than they need or require or um, is safe to give. Or let's say it's the NPO patient with the fluid or the uh, patient with the fluid restriction, setting the clear expectations at the beginning of the shift. Um, If it's the patient that will try to manipulate you into not doing things like, oh, that nurse yesterday was so awful. She made me get up and walk three times. You're so much nicer than her. Um, That's Clearly, they're trying to manipulate you into not doing uh, things, you know, having them do things that are good for them that they don't necessarily want to do. So try to identify that behavior early on and then set the clear expectations about what is going to happen and why it's going to happen. Hopefully, we'll set you up for less of that manipulative behavior something that patients will try to get you to do just as a, another aside with the pain medications or the um, benzodiazepines is they'll ask you to push it fast. Um, this patient is looking to get high and has had enough pain medication in their life to know that that fast push gives them that high that they are craving. And, you know, they need treatment because they may have opioid addiction or benzodiazepine addiction. When a patient asks you to push it fast or to give their benzos with their um, opiates, you are completely within your rights to say no, to say our policy is to give this over three minutes and I'm going to follow policy or whatever your policy is, it is completely within your rights to say, I'm going to give this per policy because that is safest for you. And I need to watch your blood pressure or whatever. And I need to make sure that you don't stop breathing. I mean, you can always turn it back to policy. You can always turn it back to patient safety. Don't ever let a patient talk you into doing something that is not safe. Okay. You just, there's no, that's not happening. You guys would never let that happen. Okay. So manipulative patients are very common, especially patients that are in the hospital a lot. They know the system. They know how to game the system. And they are going to pull out all the stops to try to get their way. Okay, the next kind of patient that is a little bit difficult to deal with sometimes is your helpless patient. Now, I'm not talking about the patient who is genuinely needing help. That's a lot of our patients, especially in the critical care setting where they they need total and complete care. Uh, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about patients that are so helpless that you you honestly wonder how they manage to take care of themselves and their affairs at home. So a lot of times this is going to be, how do I say this? A lot of times if you're a female, if you are especially a younger woman, Attractive or not, doesn't matter. Um, It's not because they're attracted to you that they're going to engage in this disgusting, helpless, and also manipulative behavior. It's because they're trying to exert power over you. And this will be the, the patient. A lot of times it's a male patient, but it can happen female to female as well, who is asking for 
intimate care, I guess is the word, that they could provide, like the man who suddenly can't um, manage the urinal by himself, really, or the patient who goes to the bathroom and their arms work fine, but they just can't clean themselves up okay. Um, Yeah. When you're presented with someone like that, it can be really disconcerting and make you really, really uncomfortable. If someone's, you know, obviously, if they're very ill, if they're very weak, if they're injured, if they've got five IVs in their dominant arm, yeah, they might have trouble um, taking care of their peri care after they go to the bathroom. That's one thing. But um, you've got your walkie-talkie patient who's been sitting up in bed, uh using his iPad, calling his friends, uh, doing whatever, now suddenly can't take care of the urinal and getting it into position, I'm thinking that we have some kind of, um, is pervert an acceptable word to use? Maybe so. So you have just some kind of, you know, something else is going on and you don't need to be getting involved with that. So when patients like this um, or a patient who is just much too helpless for their situation um, starts asking for help with things that they should not need help with, I ask them, how do you take care of these things at home? Like I ask, I'm genuinely curious. I genuinely want to know what your level of independence is at home. You'll have patients who refuse to um, cut up their food because they want you to do it, or they can't reach over to their bedside table to get their water. It's within reach. They want you to do it. I've had patients whose blankets are at the foot of the bed call me into the room to put the blankets on them. I mean, and these are patients that can move fine um, or to adjust a pillow that they can do. So you will get patients who are so helpless and it's just a power thing. They're just exerting power over you. It's another form of manipulative behavior. And so what I like to do is first I query, how do you take care of things at home? And then you know, give them the benefit of the doubt at first, okay? I'm not going to say always assume people are out to manipulate you in any way. Give them the benefit of the doubt and try to determine if there's any barriers that are keeping them from managing on their own in this task or whatever it is. So maybe, maybe their IV lines are in the way. Maybe um, that makes it difficult for them to manage whatever, you know, cleaning up after going to the bathroom. So maybe you saline lock their IV so that they can get up, go to the bathroom and do all of that. That's fine. Um, If they're just straight up being, you know, really helpless or even a little bit of a pervert, I sometimes, honestly, you guys, sometimes I will follow up and say, you know, before we can discharge you safely, you need to be, you know, back to your prior level of, of independence and, you know, when, when we talk to the case manager, we'll see if you're safe to go home. We'll see if, if, you know, do you need to go to a skilled nursing facility until you get your strength back, whatever it is. Sometimes just mentioning that if they're not independent, they're, they're clearly need more, more help. Nobody wants to go to a skilled nursing facility, by the way. And I'm not going to say that I say that. I guess that would be... 
probably not the most professional thing to say, but honestly, if they really do have a problem, then they might need more intense, um, maybe they need some home health or something like that. So I will try to give them the benefit of the doubt, though I will not lie, I have sometimes said that to a man who was being, in my opinion, a little bit creepy about some things and had no reason to be asking me to do the things that he was doing. So I nipped that behavior in the bud right away with that. So anyway, asking patients how they manage at home often makes them realize, yeah, you you know, you're on to me and I can't actually do this for myself. And then identifying barriers if they weren't actually being manipulative in that helpless manner, identifying the barriers makes them feel um, involved in their care and um, taking ownership. So maybe initially you identified it as, ugh, they're manipulating me with this whole, you know, I'm too helpless to do whatever. But really, they did have a barrier and now they're empowered. So that can happen as well. Okay, then another type of difficult patient to deal with is the patient who's just annoyed by everything. So some patients are just bothered by all the medical and nursing interventions that take place and you wonder why they came to the hospital in the first place. This one happens a lot. So this is why at the beginning of a shift, I like to explain what we'll be doing, or if it's a new admin, I like to explain how frequently we have to do assessments, how frequently we have to do interventions, especially for those patients when you're working night shift that come up in the middle of the night or you're working night shift. And let's say you've got a patient on an insulin drip and you're checking their blood sugar every hour. Make sure they know I need to check your blood sugar every hour for your safety because you're on the insulin infusion and you know, blah, 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 blah. So I like to set that expectation of what's going Going to happen. Or I say, because you've had a stroke, I need to wake you every hour to monitor your neurological status. I will let you sleep in between as much as I can. But those first few hours are going to be very busy with a lot of medications, a lot of interventions and a lot of neuro assessments. And those are all for your own safety, because we need to monitor you very closely. So again, bringing it back to patient safety, bringing it back to their well being is always a very good thing to do. Um, a lot of times when patients come to the ICU and they've never been to the ICU before, especially at night, I will tell them um, it's often difficult for patients to sleep here. There's a lot of alarms. There's a lot of beeping. Um, we do frequent assessments. There's frequent interventions. I can offer you earplugs and an eye mask if, you know, they're well enough to need earplugs and an eye mask. And I try to get them a partner in their care in that way. Um, some patients just are annoyed by basic things like taking their vital signs or taking their blood pressure or getting them up walking. A lot of patients don't want to get up and walk. Like you have to always bring it back to their benefit, how it will help them. They clearly don't want to be there. So how will this intervention or assessment help them get back home, which is clearly where they would rather be. And then you can't take it personally if the patient is annoyed. And I I don't apologize. Like a lot of people say, I'm sorry, but I need to take your blood pressure. No, you're not sorry because you're not doing anything that you need to be sorry for. You can say, you know, excuse me, Mr. Jones, it's time for your blood pressure. I gave you your labetalol an hour ago. I want to make sure that your blood pressure 
is responding appropriately, always bringing it back to their benefit and their own safety. So um, that the annoyed patient, super common, don't take it personally, set the expectations and do what you need to do to keep the patient safe. And then one level up from the annoyed patient is the patient that refuses things. Um, some patients even refuse everything. So um, when we look at a patient like this is, you know, oftentimes uh, it's the patient who'll say, I don't want my vitals taken now. I don't want to be repositioned. I don't want you to check my blood sugar, whatever it is. So I like to approach patients like this because they're, their issue generally is that they're exerting control. They need to feel some control in a situation which, in where they have lost much of their control. They're in the hospital, they're in the ER, they're in the intensive care unit, wherever they are. So I like to give them some ownership in their care. So I might say, I know you're having pain and you're due for some Norco if you'd like, but I need to check your blood pressure first to make sure it's safe. So clearly... If they're going to choose to have the PRN pain medication, then they are consenting to have their blood pressure taken as well. Um, so if the patient has a choice, I like to give them a choice. If I'm checking their blood sugar, I ask them, which finger would you like me to use? A lot of times they don't care, but sometimes they do because maybe everyone's been using the middle finger on their left hand for the past three days and it's gotten sore. So they might appreciate you asking them which they would prefer. Prefer. If you have a patient who flat out refuses, um, make sure that you document that very clearly. So let's say you've got a patient who just will not let you turn them. And so you might want to write in your nursing note, patient refused to be repositioned, patient educated on necessity of frequent repositioning to avoid skin breakdown, patient is alert and oriented times four, acknowledges understanding and continues refusal, period. So, you know, just documenting very clearly that the patient's refused, the patient has been educated, the patient is alert, is able to make decisions and has continued to refuse the intervention. Then you guys go on about your business. Like don't get into an epic battle with this patient about it. They've refused. They've been, you know, educated on why it's important. They're an adult. They're capable of making their own decisions. They're clearly making a poor decision, but you can't force people to do things. They have a right to refuse medical care. So, you know, rather than struggle with them, go on about your merry way. And in a couple hours, maybe come back and assess again. Maybe then they'll agree or want something. But um just don't let it bog bog you down, okay? If they're refusing a medication or a blood sugar check, for instance, and they're on an insulin drip, you got to let the MD know for sure. And, um, you know, I would let the MD know that the patient's refusing to be turned. It's, it's not like I would call them to tell them that. But when they're rounding, I would just say, oh, and by the way, they're refusing all um, repositioning. Sometimes, I mean, this frustrates the heck out of me, but sometimes if the doctor tells them to do it, they'll do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that happens all the time. Okay, so... That's the refusing patient. You will see those quite a bit. It will frustrate you because you will want to say, why are you here if you're refusing everything? Try to avoid going there. I mean, you can say it in your mind and you will, but um, try to discover the reason why 
again, look for barriers and try to give the patient some ownership in their plan of care, and you might get a little bit more cooperation from that. Okay, then we have the aggressive patient. And yes, sadly, you will see this a lot as well. Um, a lot of times patients are aggressive for medical reasons that they have no control over. Maybe they have an encephalopathy. Maybe they're going through alcohol withdrawal. Maybe they have dementia, a brain injury. Maybe they're hypoxic. Maybe they're just really scared or really anxious. Um, and sometimes they're just being jerks. But most of the time, it's for some kind of medical reason, most of the time. So I took care of a patient not that long ago who was going through alcohol withdrawal, which is really, really um, difficult and challenging and hard for the patient, hard for the nurse. I did a podcast about it not too long ago. If you um, look for alcohol withdrawal, you, you should be able to find it. And it's all about taking care of patients going through alcohol withdrawal. Um this patient was very paranoid. He was straight up mean. He was threatening, had tried to punch people, had tried to kick the night shift nurse on more than one occasion. Um, and my philosophy with taking care of patients that are aggressive in this way is my own safety comes absolutely first. So at one point, God, I'll never forget this. He was swinging the call light around like, um, you know, that uh, that weapon with the with the chain and the big metal steel, I don't know what it is, ball on the end. I think it's called a mace. He was swinging it around like that. Um, do you think I went in and checked his blood sugar right then? No, I did not. Um, but I did chart um, every encounter in absolute detail, quoting his words, him saying, I'm going to kill you. Okay, so I quoted that in my charting. Um, and at the end of the note, simply wrote blood sugar not checked due to concerns for personal safety, because the patient is swinging the call light and telling me he's going to kill me. So I'm not going in there right now. Of course, I let the MD know as well. And you want to let your charge nurse know, too. They probably already are aware of it. But if they're not, let them know. Um, that guy, I think we ended up getting a security guard to come stand in the room. And that calmed him down a fair amount. So, um, but yeah, I'm not going to go in there and put myself at risk for a patient who's clearly very, very aggressive and way bigger than me. Not happening. So... You can also use the buddy system sometimes with aggressive patients, especially if they're the confused aggressive type. One can go in and kind of distract them while you do whatever you need to do. Um, this would not be uh, the patient who is willingly being aggressive. It's more your confused patient. You know, maybe you need to start an IV and you can get one nurse to kind of stand on one side of the bed and distract their attention that way while you quickly do whatever you need to do on the other side. Okay. Then you have another group of, uh, we'll shift into families here for a second, families, visitors, whatever. So, um, I call these the watchers, you guys. And, um, it just, in the hospital where I work, there's no restriction really on visitors. So you could have six, seven people hanging out in the room uh, while you're trying to work with this critically ill patient. So um, if you've ever 
had that feeling of, you know, six pairs of eyes watching your every move, you know what I'm talking about. And if you haven't, don't worry, you will, because the watchers are out there and it can be really, really unnerving, especially if you're a new nurse and feeling at all any insecurity about your performance, even though you are competent and you are a good nurse, you know, you always kind of feel like, a little bit nervous about things, especially when they're new. And then when you have six people staring at every single thing you do, it can really ramp up the anxiety. Think about when you were in your skills checkoffs or in clinical and your clinical professor would be watching you like a hawk. Weren't you way more nervous performing a skill than when you were just practicing by yourself in the lab? So that's what it's like when you've got six family members all staring at you. They're not talking to you. They're not talking to each other. They're just watching you. So I don't really think it's that intentional. Like I don't think people are like, oh, when she comes in, we're going to stare at the nurse. But they've been sitting in this room with their sick loved one for hours and you come in and you're doing all these things. And you know, you're probably the most interesting thing happening in the room at that time. And maybe they're fascinated by medical stuff or find your job really interesting. That's one reason why people watch. They're just, you know, intrigued by what you're doing. Other times people watch because they're suspicious. So they're watching to make sure you don't make any errors. Um, so there's, you know, off often going to be different motivations for why they're doing it. But I always try to just tell myself that I'm just so interesting. And that's why they're watching me. Uh, that may or may not be true. But it helps, you know, keep my anxiety down. Um, so one of the things that I do, and sometimes the watchers are also note takers, by the way, the note takers are either planning to sue the hospital, or just conveying information back to other family members that can't be there. Maybe they've got a close friend or a family member that's in the medical field and they just want to provide them with a summary of the care to make sure that it is good care. Um, I've seen lots of different reasons for the note takers. Some people get upset about it. I don't care if you want to take notes, take notes. Honestly, if I was in a hospital and my loved one was there, I probably would keep track of all the things that were happening because I would want to be involved. Um, so what I like to do when I have a group of watchers or I have a note taker is that I just explain everything. I just go through every little thing that I'm doing. As I do that, as I explain the plan of care, as I explain my interventions and my assessments, you can feel the anxiety in the room decrease. A lot of times the watching and the staring drops off and people get a lot more relaxed. Um, there are people who want to know every single medication you're giving, every assessment that you're doing, why you're doing every intervention, why is it necessary. So you're going to be talking a lot sometimes throughout your shift. But when it pays off, it's definitely, definitely worth it. When the family sees that that some of what you're doing is benign and I'm and because a lot of times people see if you're coming in and doing assessments and doing interventions, does that mean their loved one's getting worse? Um, if you can explain, I'm doing a routine, you know, blood sugar check, or I'm doing a routine um, head to toe assessment, I'm going to be doing it, you know, every four hours or every two hours, then they kind of relax because maybe when they see you come in the room, they think, something's wrong. What are they doing? Is something wrong? So explaining what you're doing and why you're doing it. Um, a lot of times, 
I mean, even just giving a saline flush, you know, the routine flushes to keep their lines paint. What is that? What is that? This is just a, a saline flush to keep their IV line open. Oh, okay. You know, they might think you had to come in and give a medication because their loved one was taking a turn for the worse. No. So I like to explain all of those things. Um, even sometimes switching out the IV fluids. What is that? What are you hanging? Is that a new medication? No. So just explaining, you know, the doctor changed the IV fluids to something with a little dextrose in it because her blood sugar has been a little bit low. Everybody relaxes, everybody calms down. So when you've got a group of watchers and you've got a group of note takers and you've got a group of question askers, just be proactive about it and explain things and talk them through what you're doing. Um, if the patient's awake and can hear you and can communicate, it also puts them at ease as well to know that the things that you're doing are routine. And when you're doing something that is in response to them needing intervention, them knowing that you're addressing it is is uh, comforting for them as well. Okay, so um, definitely the watchers are common. Okay, then we have the demanding uh, family. So the important thing to really understand about the demanding family is, again, they need control. They're scared. They're stressed. Um, and a lot of times this will get displayed in ways that may not might not make sense to you because what you're focused on isn't necessarily what the family is focused on. So this is going to be the family member that comes up to the nurse's station to tell you there's a speck of blood or a little bit of sputum on mom's pillowcase or tell you that the monitor alarms are pinging when you're very aware that they're pinging because you're watching the central monitor. Um, these families, again, they are uber stressed, typically very stressed, very anxious, and they just need some sense of control. And a lot of times, maybe they don't trust the, the nursing staff yet. And so they feel like, well, I got to go tell them about the blood speck because they won't notice. Um, You've probably already noticed the blood speck, but you've got 15 other things you're doing to keep mom alive, and you'll change the pillowcase when you're able to. You know, you have to obviously prioritize your care. I'm not saying don't change the linens, but obviously you're going to do the things that you need to do first, and then you'll do the nice to do things a little bit later. Um, a common thread with these types of families is that they will fixate on non-essentials. And I have found that they fixate on the non-essentials because those are things that they can understand. So while you're running around trying to hang, you know, norepinephrine, get a central line placed, pump in fluids, they're telling you um, that, you know, mom's gown is dirty or her lips look dry or something like that. Or when are, she, when are you going to feed her? People will ask that all the time when you're trying to just take care of a critically ill patient in that acute phase when you're trying to keep them alive and they're fixating on, well, when are we going to feed her? Because they understand that. They understand that mom needs nutrition. Mom needs nutrition if she's going to be strong and fight. And they'll fixate on those kinds of things. So um, what I like to do with these families is communicate what I'm doing and why I'm doing it and let them know that 
Right now, I need to get her blood pressure up to at least 90 over 60 or whatever. Once we get her blood pressure stable, then we can look at changing her gown. Okay, something like that. So let them know why you're focused on different things than they're focused on because they may not realize that a blood pressure of 81 is not good for mom. They may not realize that. So um, explaining what you're doing and why you're doing it really goes a long way to assuage some of their... um, demands. Um, There are times that the family will ask you to do things for them. And this is where um, I have two trains, two schools of thought, I guess, in my head on this one. Um, Families will ask you to bring them ice water, will ask you to make them coffee or bring them blankets, bring them toothbrushes, um, ask you to troubleshoot their telephones and Wi-Fi connections for the hospital, ask you how to find the football game on TV. Like, I like to do things for families because I generally really enjoy getting to meet all the people that I do. Um, But I'm not going to do it at the expense of their loved one's care. So typically, if I'm really busy taking care of a patient who's very sick, and I've got a family who's asking me to bring them some ice water, uh, what I typically do is I will say, uh, our volunteer comes in at four, and I'll make sure they come right by and see what you need. That lets them know that The ice water is not really a priority for me right now as the bedside nurse, but there is another person who can help them with those kinds of things. Or um, I'll say, you know, again, I'll say, let me get her blood pressure under control and a couple other things, maybe her blood sugar, whatever it is, whatever it is that I'm trying to do to really help this patient. And then we'll see about getting you your water. Otherwise, if you can't wait, there's a cafeteria on the second floor or whatever. So um, just letting them know that my priority is their loved one. Um, Now, there are families that will go into panic mode at every alarm, at every IV pump beeping. Um, So what I like to do with these families is take them through a brief uh, orientation, I guess, to all the sounds and things that they're going to hear in the room. So like when the IV fluid goes into TKO mode, it will beep a little bit and you'll have people thinking that their parent is dying because the IV alarm uh, is IV pump is alarming a little bit. Um, so even the scuds alarming when they stop working, you know, how they'll get loose, the connections will get loose and they won't work. People will come running out into the hallway, freaking out about that. And that's just, again, that's that stress. That tells you how stressed they are if every abnormal sound in the room is causing them to panic. Can you imagine being at that high level of anxiety that just one beeping machine sends you over the edge. So you really have to have a lot of compassion uh, with these uh, with these family members. The the beeps and all of that that we're so used to are can be really scary for people that aren't used to this environment. And then if they're in the ICU, for instance, and we've got the bedside monitors there, I talk them through what all the numbers are. Okay, so that top one is their heart rate and normal is 60 to 100. You know, I'll kind of give them a brief overview. Um, That next number down is their oxygen saturation level. And I want that to be above 93 or whatever. And then the next number down is their respiratory rate. And, you know, normal is like 12 to 20 but 24 is not anything to get 
super concerned about. And then, you know, say it's 24 at the time. And then the next number below that is their blood pressure. And I really want that top number to be above 90. So we're keeping a close eye on that. And then just letting them know, um, a lot of times these alarms are false signals and I can, just because I don't run in here doesn't mean I don't know what's going on with your family member. It's just that it's a poor signal. It's kind of a false alarm. Um, don't silence any of the alarms. A lot of times family members will do that. You don't want them to do that. But just let them know that not every alarm needs to have a code blue called. Okay. So letting them know that. Okay. So then you have the slovenly family or group of visitors. So when my hospital built a brand new beautiful building and we moved our ICU over to that new building, we had new rules as well. And basically one of the new rules was family members were not going to be allowed to sleep in the rooms overnight and we weren't going to allow family members to eat in the rooms. So why did we make those fancy new rules when we moved into our fancy new building? And that's because we unfortunately had many, many family members who pushed those limits way too far. So I'm not, I'm not even exaggerating you guys when I would say that we would have people sleeping on the floor of the hospital room, uh, sleeping in the recliners, bringing in massive amounts of garbage to eat, leaving the mess everywhere. Um, it was, it was gross. Um, I'm one time I remember you guys, we had a family member, um, a patient who was very, very sick, very, very, very sick. And so a lot of family members were there kind of doing that vigil thing that people do when their loved ones, you know, going to probably die soon and they want to be there for them. I totally get that. I totally get wanting to be there with your loved one, but there were a whole bunch of people here for this. And, um, they didn't really seem that, well, they were interacting I don't know. It kind of seemed like a family reunion in the room, I guess. Um, they weren't that interested in inquiring about the patient or her status, but maybe they were just nervous and scared. They were very concerned about bringing in a whole bunch of fast food and leaving a huge mess everywhere. And this one member of the family, I think, or a friend of the family would sit in this recliner like all day long and never get up and just sit in there and eat all this garbage. Um, and then at one point, the nurse had to, they had to put in a central line or do something. I don't know what it was, but they needed everybody to leave the room. And when they did that, uh, they got everybody out of the room and the chair that this person had been sitting in had urine in it. Like this family member had just peed in the chair because it was easier than getting up to go to the bathroom. Gross. Okay. So that's an extreme example, but you will have family members that come in and just bring their stuff and leave it everywhere and make for just kind of a not very sterile, very clean, very, um, infection control <laughs> minded environment. So um, I like to set boundaries again with the families around this. So like for instance, in the ICU, that bedside table 
for the most part, is used by the nurse. If the patient's um, getting better, not super sick, then the bedside table is, you know, used by the patient for their meals and their belongings. But if you've got a critically ill patient, you need all the space in the room for things like, you know, all the nursey type stuff that you're doing. So I will tell them we need to keep this table clear for nursing supplies. And you can, you know, your things are perfect right over there. That's great. So um, just kind of keeping that, um, keeping the family members from turning the patient's room into a repository of a whole bunch of junk all over the place. And it's not very uh, hygienic. And now we don't allow the families to bring food in, but a lot of places probably still do. And it's just gross. So um, you have to just, I don't know, have them throw it away. I, I refuse to clean up after people, but well, I'm not going to say I refuse because I will bend eventually because I won't be able to handle it and I'll just throw everything away. But anyway, so slovenly families do happen. Try to set boundaries ahead of time so that your room does not become unsafe or um, soiled, dirty with a lot of risk for infection. Okay, then we have the questioning family. These are uh, right up there with the watchers and the note takers are the families who question everything. What is that? Why are you doing that? What, make, what medication is that? Um, did you know that he's on 25 uh, metoprolol at home? Why are you giving him 50? Uh, when is the doctor coming by? When did they last have a BM? Like lots and lots and lots of questions. And again, lots of when are you going to feed her questions. So while well, we definitely always want families to feel involved uh, being constantly interrupted with questions like that can be a bit distracting. So I like to deal with the questioning family basically in the same way that I approach that watching family is just being proactive with explaining everything. And eventually they they start to learn that either you know what you're doing and they can trust you or you've taught them everything because you've explained so much that their questions slow down as they, you know, they learn to trust, they learn the routine, they learn what's going on, they learn the plan of care. Um, this is one of those times, you guys, when you really want to know your meds before you walk into the room. I guarantee you, if you're a little iffy on a med, this will be the one time somebody says, why is he getting that? And if it's a drug that you've never given or... Um, a drug that might have multiple uses, you want to make sure you know why the patient is getting it. So um, looking through the doctor's note is often a really great way to understand the rationale behind why certain drugs are chosen if you're not 100% sure, especially when it's a med that, again, has multiple uses. Of course, you're not ever going to give a med that you don't understand, though there have been times when I've gotten a med from the med room and I don't know the med very well. I will look it up when I'm in the room. But with a family like this, maybe look it up in the bedroom before you go in there. Okay. So um, now you're probably thinking, do I really want to be a nurse? Is everybody really challenging and difficult to deal with? And I'm going to say absolutely not. Most of the people that I meet, uh, patients, their families are wonderful people that I've loved meeting. I've really enjoyed taking care of so many of them. And they will reaffirm your decision over and over again that you made to become a nurse. But you will get challenging assignments. You will have people who 
push your buttons, try to manipulate you, make you question your life choices. And I just want you to have some strategies for handling it. Know that it's not going to happen every single day and just keep your focus on the patient where you want it to be and where the patient needs for it to be. So that is my down and dirty guide to dealing with some of the difficult patients and families that you might encounter. And let's see what we're talking about next week, you guys. Hang on one second. Next week, we are discussing... Oh, I can't pronounce it. I'm going to try. We're going to talk about hydroxychloroquine. That Plaquenil. (laughs) We're going to talk about that because it's been in the news so much. Um, At the time I'm recording this, that has been in the news um, because of COVID-19, but it's actually a drug for lupus. So I thought maybe we should talk about what this drug is really used for. So that'll be our focus on pharmacology for next week. And I'm going to practice saying it so that by the time you get your podcast next week, I will be really good at saying it. Okay, I will see you guys then. Have a fantastic week. Bye-bye. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing.